1: Over the past couple of weeks, we've been discussing the contemplation in the Satipatthana Sutta of the Four Noble Truths. We started with the truth of dukkha, which is to be understood, and its causes, craving, which is to be abandoned. So tonight, we'll explore the third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha, which is to be realized. These are the Buddha's words describing this truth. He said, And this, monks, is the noble truth of the cessation of dukkha, the remainderless fading and cessation, renunciation, relinquishment, and letting go of that very craving. Craving is the cause of dukkha. The cessation of dukkha is the letting go of that very craving. So, here is where we can see the different Buddhist traditions all converge in their understanding of what liberates the mind. You know, there are many methods and techniques and vocabularies and even metaphysical understandings, there's a wide range of description. But there's one essential taste of freedom that's described in all of the Buddhist traditions. And it's summarized in one phrase of the Buddha's, where he says liberation through non-clinging. Liberation of mind through non-craving. All the different practices we do, whether it's the practice of virtue, of generosity, of loving-kindness, of compassion, of concentration, of mindfulness, of insight. Every practice we do serves this goal, serves this end of freedom. And the Buddha said it very directly. You know, in one of his discourses in the middle Length Sayings, he said, this holy life does not have gain, honor, and renown for its benefit, or the attainment of virtue for its benefit, or the attainment of concentration for its benefit, or knowledge and vision for its benefit. But it is this unshakable deliverance of mind that is the goal of this holy life, its heartwood and its end. So we do all of these practices of generosity, of virtue, of concentration, of insight, but it's all serving the end of freedom. So the question for us tonight as we look at this third noble truth is how can we experience for ourselves the mind free of craving? At first on a momentary level and in the end that unshakable deliverance of mind which is the cessation of craving without remainder, that's the ultimate goal. There was a very famous Tibetan master. His name was Patral Rinpoche. And he was a wandering 19th century Dzogchen master in eastern Tibet. And he was very beloved by just the ordinary people. He was known as the enlightened vagabond because he lived very poorly. He just wandered around. Often people didn't even recognize his enlightenment. And he had some useful words to say about this third noble truth, although he didn't use that terminology. In a teaching he called, advice from me to myself. So this is it. He's speaking to himself. Listen up, old bad karma patrol, you dweller in distraction. For ages now, you've been beguiled, entranced, and fooled by appearances. Are you aware of that? Are you? Right this very instant, when you're under the spell of mistaken perception, you've got to watch out. Don't let yourself get carried away by this fake and empty life. Your mind is spinning around about carrying out a lot of useless projects. It's a waste. Give it up. Thinking about the hundred plans you want to accomplish with never enough time to finish them just weighs down your mind. You're completely distracted by all these projects which never come to an end but keep spreading out more like ripples in water. Don't be a fool. For once, just sit tight. You beat your little drum and your audience thinks it's charming to hear. You're reciting words about offering up your body, but you still haven't stopped holding it dear. You're making your little symbols go cling, cling without keeping the ultimate person, purpose in mind. All this Dharma practice equipment that seems so attractive, forget about it. If you let go of everything, Everything, everything. That's the real point. Even though you don't know how to practice, just let go of everything. That's what I really want to say. So that sums it up. Just let go of everything. Well, how do we do this? We seem to have some pretty deeply conditioned habits of holding on, of craving, of clinging, the cause of suffering. We can decondition, we can begin to decondition this deep pattern of craving, this letting go of everything in a variety of ways. And the different Buddhist traditions highlight one or another of these different methods And each method, each way, each tradition has its own strengths and also its own cautions. And I want to touch on both of those sides. So one way we relinquish or abandon craving, and one that's very familiar to us in this tradition, is through an increasingly refined awareness of the three characteristics. Now, the more clearly we see impermanence, just the changing nature of all experience, the more we understand for ourselves its essential unreliability. Because things continually change, they're incapable of offering lasting satisfaction. So we may hear these words, you know, and we may agree with them or not you know, on a conceptual level, but it's really in the direct seeing, the direct perception of the continual change that we begin to know viscerally, we grok the fact, yes, whatever is arising is going to pass. It's unreliable. It's not going to afford us the happiness, the peace, the fulfillment that we're looking for. So we begin to see this for ourselves. You now it goes from the conceptual level to the level of wisdom. And then we see the selfless, impersonal nature of this whole unfolding process. You now it's all ungovernable in the sense that everything arises out of appropriate conditions not because we want it or don't want it to be a certain way. That's one of the meanings of anatta, ungovernableness. Things are following their own laws, and we can either be in harmony with that and understand those laws or not. And we see that nothing really lasts long enough to be called self Sometimes we open to the truth of impermanence on a very macro level. We could almost say a conventional level. You now just think of geological time. You know, the birth and death of galaxies and stars and the planets. And the sun is going to explode in four and a half billion years. Either explode or collapse. I think it's not quite clear which it'll do. or historical time. You now I was just reading a book. I just finished a book about Genghis Khan. You know, I can't remember the dates exactly, but I think like 1200 or so. But this was an amazing event in world history. I mean, he conquered practically all of Asia and kind of mass destruction and violence and you know, huge changes in people's lives. And now we read about it, it's almost like fiction. You know, where is it now? What, what meaning does that have now? Or even historically, but more recently, especially here in New England, you know, when you walk through the woods and you see all these old stone walls and the stone foundations of, of old abandoned houses, you know, the headstones, the old headstones in cemeteries, there were a lot of lives involved in all of that. Their life stories were as vivid and and as compelling as our own. But where are they now? It's like it all has just disappeared. What remains? If we reflect on these truths, if we really let it in, you know, and have have a little reflection on impermanence in these different levels. It loosens the bonds of attachment and craving. You know, our own particular compulsions seem a little less so important given the broad scope of history. It's kind of the difference between you know, watching the roller coaster of a child's emotions, even in the course of one day. You know how a child can go to happy, to sadness, to crying, to excitement, to joy, to fear. Uh, just very emotionally labile. And compare that to what hopefully is a somewhat more equanimous mind of an adult, you know, who just understands kind of the changing life circumstances, and is not so reactive to them. Well, this is the wisdom that we can begin to bring into our lives, and it weakens the force of compulsive craving or desire. We begin to get a little more space in our lives. In meditation, we experience the truth of change on much more momentary levels we see that whatever is arising is also passing very, very quickly. There are times in meditation where the perception of change becomes so refined that things are disappearing in the very moment that they're arising. So there's one, in science, there's one very illuminating vision of this rapidity of change. This was from just an article in one of the last issues of The Inquiring Mind. It said, In the subatomic world, time is sometimes measured in what scientists have named attoseconds, a millionth of a trillionth of a second. It takes an electron about one attosecond to travel all the way around a proton. Meanwhile, inside the proton, perhaps one level deeper into reality, an attosecond would be regarded as a long nap. Down here, time is measured in zeptoseconds, a billionth of a trillionth of a second. I think at some point the physicists realized that they had entered a Marx Brothers routine where the jokes are coming so fast, you begin to see that it's all a joke. So when they started measuring things changing even faster, in trillionths of a trillionth of a second, they named it a yoktosecond Atto, zepto and yocto. <laughs> By the way, the time it takes for a quark, subatomic particle, to circle around inside a proton is somewhere between a zeptosecond and a yoktosecond. All you can do is smile and let go. So this is actually the speed at which things are changing. These are are things that have been measured. Well, we may not have yet refined our attention to quite this degree, but in the strengthening of mindfulness and concentration... We do come to experience the flow of change very, very rapidly. Now, this is this is one of the meditative insights that opens to us. And at first, when we first begin to feel and experience the rapid changing of everything that's arising, at first it's exhilarating. You know, it's like this whole new world opens up to us. And at that time, the factors of enlightenment become stronger, they come into balance, so we feel a lot of joy, a lot of happiness, a lot of excitement, a lot of exhilaration. But as we continue to watch the rapidity of change, we then go through phases, many people, of fear and even despair, because we're just seeing the constant dissolution of things. And everything that we were hoping for, to rely on for stability and security, we see the whole world, everything inside, outside, our minds, our bodies, it's momentarily dissolving, instantaneously dissolving. It's as if everything is falling away. So that can be a little upsetting, you know. This really see, deeply see, that there's nothing to hold on to. But if we can maintain a certain quality of balance and mindfulness and steadiness through this period, even with its fearfulness or as we feel despair or we really feel the dukkha of conditioned phenomena, if we can maintain a balanced mindfulness, with just observing it, we end up in a place of very profound equanimity. And at this point, the practice is really going on by itself. It's flowing along very smoothly. So one simile for this progression, which many of you may have heard before, but it really illustrates in some way the progress of our meditation. It's the example of somebody you know, doing a free-fall jump out of an airplane and the first moments, this tremendous exhilaration and excitement of free fall. And then at a certain point, they realize they have no parachute. And so that's where the, the, the fear and the despair and, <laughs> oh, my God, what's happening? You know, there's nothing to hold on to, and I have no parachute. So they go through that stage. And then they fall, 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 feel of fear, full of despair. And then at a certain point, they realize there's no ground So then the mind relaxes, the heart relaxes. No parachute, no ground, everything is fine. And so that's that place of equanimity. Now at this stage of equanimity, of evenness, of mind, craving is greatly diminished. It's greatly attenuated. Why? First, because the mind is non-reactive in this place. It really is in a place of perfect balance. And one of the reasons it's in such balance is because at this stage of equanimity, pleasant feelings fade away. And what becomes predominant are neutral feelings. So the feelings we're experiencing at this place of equanimity go from What earlier in our practice might have been very pleasant or unpleasant goes to a place of great neutrality. There's something interesting about this. We find that neutral feeling is actually more satisfying than pleasant feeling. There's a very great refinement and subtlety of mind at this time in this experience of neutral feeling. And that's why it's so spacious and so open and so um, still. Sometimes in this state, all the objects disappear and all that's left is awareness. But right here is one of those places where a great caution is needed. Here where the practice is going so well, you know, we're really at the mature stages of insight practice, going so well. So this is what Mahasi Sayadaw says about this stage, and it's a very important both description and caution. At times the number of different objects may shrink to one or two, or all may even disappear. However, at this time, the knowing consciousness is still present. In this very clear open space of the sky, there remains only one very clear blissful consciousness, which is very clear beyond comparison and very blissful. Yogis tend to delight in this clear blissful consciousness. This is known as Dhamma Raga, or lust for the Dhamma, craving for the Dhamma. At this time, it has to be noticed, knowing, knowing, knowing. We need to stay mindful in this very clear, open, blissful state where only awareness remains. Now, as the mind settles into this, just relaxes, and it's really happening by itself at this point. There's not really much effort that's needed at all. Just fall into this place of equanimity about formations, and here's where all the factors of enlightenment are maturing. So we're just in this state, and all of those factors of awakening are getting stronger, It's a perfect balance of no wanting, no craving, no resistance. It's just the openness, the complete impartiality of equanimity. And when all those factors of enlightenment are matured or in balance, the flow of consciousness conditioned by objects can suddenly stop. It's like there's a break in the flow. And in that moment the mind opens or realizes opens to or realizes the unconditioned the unborn nibbana So this is the Buddha's description of this There is monks that sphere wherein there is neither earth nor water nor fire nor air where there is neither this world nor world beyond nor sun nor moon There, monks, I declare, there is no coming, no going, no stopping, no passing away, no arising. It is not established. It continues not. It has no object. This, indeed, is the end of suffering. So one very homespun example of this, and again, it's just a simile, but we can have frequent experience of it. Have you had the experience sometimes when you're home particularly, you know, and you're in the kitchen, you're just there doing what you're doing, and then all of a sudden, the hum of the refrigerator stops, you know, and you just experience uh, the peace, the silence. Before it stopped we probably weren't even aware of it and was probably not aware of the stress of it. Even that particular example is a mild stress. Still, it's, it's impactful. And then in the moment of it stopping, there's that sense, it's like we've put something down. There's that sense of relief, that sense of ease, that sense of stillness. This is that moment of opening or an example, a simile, for that moment of the flow of conditioned objects stopping, like the hum of the refrigerator stops into the place of ease. These moments of opening to the unborn in the Abhidhamma are called path and fruition consciousness. And the path moment occurs just once for each stage of awakening. So there's one path moment, and then there can be many of the fruition moments. The path moment, that one moment opening to the unborn, to Nibbana for each stage, has tremendous power because it has the power to uproot certain defilements, to permanently uproot certain defilements and weaken the remaining ones. So this is a very important understanding. This is the power of Nibbana, that it has the capacity to uproot from the stream of consciousness these deeply patterned, deeply conditioned defilements. And the first important one that's uprooted is the view of self. Pali it's Sakaya Ditti, wrong view of self. So it's for this reason, this uprooting power of Nibbana, the Buddha described Nibbana, the unconditioned, in this way. He said, and what bhikkhus is the unconditioned? The destruction of lust, the destruction of hatred, the destruction of delusion. This is called the unconditioned. Not surprisingly, though, different Buddhist traditions, even different lineages within Theravada, describe the experience of the unconditioned in different ways. Different teachers will say quite different things about it. So some say that these path and fruition consciousness are themselves conditioned, but they're taking the unconditioned, they're taking Nibbana as their object. Other views say that Nibbana is an unconditioned awareness, that Nibbana is an unconditioned consciousness. So these are different views that have been discussed, argued, attached to for 2,600 years. And there are references in the suttas that will support both views. So I think it's not not necessary for us to lay claim to either one of them. It's just to understand it can be understood in different ways, and great enlightened masters have described it in different ways. The idea that nibbana is an unconditioned awareness... You know, from that side of things, there is one discourse in the long discourses of the Buddha, the Diganikaya, where it says consciousness without feature, without end, luminous all around. Here, earth, water, fire, and wind have no footing. Here, long and short, coarse and fine, fair and foul, name and form are without remnant, brought to an end. From the cessation of the activity of consciousness, each here is brought to an end. So here, instead of a consciousness of objects, we have a consciousness without support, without object. Now, usually, knowing or consciousness is mirroring some object or it's manifesting something. This consciousness is called non-manifestive consciousness. It's not manifesting anything. It's unconstructed. So I'll just give a couple of examples to kind of see if we can get, have some sense of what this means. There's a simile the Buddha used about a sunbeam of light. And generally, when a sunbeam of light hits an object, it illuminates the object. Right? The light settles on the object and illuminates it. If there's no object, there's no place for the sunbeam to land. And so it's unilluminated. It's, the light is unmanifest. So Guy Armstrong, one of my teaching colleagues, gives a very uh, striking example. He says, to imagine being at the edge of the solar system, okay, out beyond Pluto someplace, facing away from the sun. So the light from the sun is coming from behind us, but we're looking out into the darkness of space if there's an asteroid or some object in space that passes in front of us, then it will be illuminated by the light from the sun. But if there's no object that passes in front of us, we won't be seeing the light. All we'll be seeing is the darkness because the light is not landing on anything. Doesn't mean the light is not there it means it's non manifestive it's not manifesting so this is one of the examples of you know how we how we might understand this consciousness that's unsupported unconstructed it's not manifest the buddha described how he attained nibbana He used the example of how he crossed the flood. When I, friend, am supported, meaning consciousness that arises with objects, when I, friend, am supported, then I sink down. When I strive, this is a good one for us, when I strive, then I am whirled about. This friend, thus friend, without support, unstriving, I crossed the flood. So it's in this unmanifest consciousness through which he crossed the flood of samsara. So one of the great Thai forest masters, his name was Ajahn Mahabua he described this third noble truth, the cessation of dukkha, the end of craving. He described it as the true mind, or the mind released. So this mind released, it has no center, it has no reference point of self, it is unsupported, unconstructed, unconditioned, and he describes adyan mahabhu describes the nature of this mind this pure awareness as ultimate ease you know or the highest peace when we hear this it's important to distinguish it from simply being you know it may be peaceful or spacious feelings that we may have in our practice. Sometimes the mind is very peaceful, it's very spacious, it's very empty. But this is not what Ajahn Mahabhava is talking about, the ultimate ease. This unconstructed, unborn awareness is the ease of emptiness. It's the absence of all defilements. But here too, like Mahasi Sayadaw, Ajahn Mahabua points out a caution, and he describes this from his own process of awakening. He was very forthcoming in describing his own enlightenment. You know, so reading his reading his works is very vivid, very vivid description of the path. So this is his own description of his process of awakening. Once when I went to practice, the problem of unawareness or ignorance had me bewildered for quite some time. Now just listen to what he describes as the problem of unawareness. At that stage, the mind was so radiant, I came to marvel at its radiance. Everything of every sort which could make me marvel seemed to have gathered there in the mind, to the point where I began to marvel at myself. Why is it that my mind is so marvelous? Looking at the body, I couldn't see it at all. It was all space, empty. The mind was radiant in full force. But luckily, as soon as I began to marvel at myself to the point of exclaiming deludedly in the heart without being conscious of it, why has my mind come so far? At that moment, a statement of Dhamma spontaneously arose. This, too, I hadn't anticipated. It suddenly appeared as if someone were speaking in the heart, although there was no one there speaking. It simply appeared as a statement. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. That's what it said. If there is a point or a center of the knower anywhere, that is an agent of birth. So this is the critical point for us. Even when our practice is in that place of radiance, The body has disappeared, this wonderful, open, radiant awareness. As long as there is identification with anything, any sense of the knower, the one knowing, then we are still bound by the conventional mind. So we need to pay attention to this. Through mindfulness, through wisdom, through investigation, we keep deconstructing the sense of self until the pure mind, the ultimate ease is realized. So the question that comes up is what are the things, what are the qualities, the states of mind... That obscure this ultimate ease that obscure the purity, the inherent purity of the mind, you know, as we know, there are many different unwholesome, unskillful mind states, but they basically all are rooted in three: all the defilements are rooted in either greed. Wanting, craving, aversion, hatred, anger, or delusion, ignorance. And we know from our own experience that these states can arise at different levels of intensity. And sometimes they're strong enough to actually motivate unwholesome actions of body and speech. The forces in the mind can move us to act in very unskillful way, ways. Sometimes the defilements are arising just on the mental level. You know, they're not manifesting through speech, they're not manifesting through action, but they are influencing our mind states. You know, and we're quite aware of the whole range of different mental states that can arise within us. And finally, and this is the one that I find in some way the most interesting and is most relevant to this third noble truth, there are the defilements that are not arising in the moment. They're not there in the moment, but they remain as latent dispositions in the mind, which means that these defilements, they're not arising in the moment, But given the proper conditions, they are going to arise. So the potential for them remains in the mind. Do we get upset when things don't go the way we want them to? Do we get attached when they do, when we like how things are going? Or do we respond with wisdom to the pleasant, to the unpleasant? We can notice this many times a day. We can notice how this force of latent defilements can arise many times a day. We're going along, everything is calm, smooth, easy. We feel good. Something happens, boom. Aversion, greed, fear, Hope. The difficulties and pleasures that we experience in the course of a day really become a truth reflecting mirror of our minds. You know, all the different circumstances that we face, if we're paying attention, they will reflect the truth of what's happening. Are there latent defilements which arise or not? So when the Buddha speaks about freedom from defilements, the cessation of dukkha, this third noble truth, he's not simply talking about being in a good mood. It goes much deeper than that. The radical, uncompromising freedom of nibbana is not dependent on circumstances. And that's why it's freedom. Well, that's a question that I often remind myself of. You know, when I'm in some state and it feels very open and free, is this freedom dependent on conditions? Is it freedom dependent on things being a certain way? If it is, it's not freedom. It's just another conditioned state. This deeper freedom the freedom of the third noble truth comes through a profound shift of understanding where the sense of self-reference has been purified precisely through the experience of the unconstructed, the unborn, the unconditioned. That is the power of nibbana to uproot the defilements in the mind to uproot the latent defilements. It's when these are uprooted, we can begin to get a sense or a taste of what the Buddha called the unshakable deliverance of mind. So even though we may have moments of genuine realization... You know, real moments of understanding emptiness or even stages of awakening, stages of enlightenment. As long as there are any latent defilements remaining, there's more work to do. This understanding is clearly expressed in the teachings of Shinul, who was one of the great founding masters of Korean Zen. I think. 12th century maybe, sometime around then. And he framed his teaching in a way that I appreciate very much. He framed all of his teachings in the context of sudden awakening, gradual cultivation. So this approach, which is similar in many respects to the Tibetan Dzogchen teachings, starts with awakening. So it starts with the recognition of the awakened mind. But it recognizes the need to cultivate or to develop or to stabilize that recognition. This is from Chanul. He said, Although we have awakened to original nature, beginningless habit energies are extremely difficult to remove suddenly. Hindrances are formidable and habits are deeply ingrained. So how could you neglect gradual cultivation simply because of one moment of awakening? After awakening, you must be constantly on your guard. After awakening. If deluded thoughts suddenly appear, do not follow after them. Reduce them again and again until you reach the unconditioned. Then and only then will your practice reach completion. So what is sudden awakening? I mean, it sounds appealing. Let's start with awakening and then cultivate it. So what is sudden awakening? It is the recognition and direct experience of the mind's empty, aware nature. This empty, aware nature of the mind is always and already present. It's already here. So Kenshi Rinpoche, the great Dzogchen master, he said, mind has no form, no color, and no substance. This is its empty aspect. No form, no shape, no color, no substance. This is its empty aspect. Yet mind can know things and perceive in an infinite variety of phenomena. This is its clear aspect. The inseparability of these two aspects, emptiness and clarity, is the primordial continuous nature of mind. So this is sudden awakening. It's awakening to the empty, aware nature. But just as in the Theravada tradition... Here, too, there can be subtle attachments and fixations of mind that are difficult to see. So we may think we're open. We have recognized this empty, aware nature. But really, there's a subtle attachment going on. So it becomes an interesting place to investigate. We can see how states of bliss or clarity or non-thought. Now, we're sitting in this place of open space, non-thought, bliss, clarity, and take that to be the nature of mind, the unborn, unconstructed nature of mind. Or there can be a subtle identification, as mentioned earlier with... Ajahn Mahabhua and Mahasi Sayadaw, there can be subtle identification with awareness itself. We reify awareness in some way. It's like we make a home of awareness and then have our sense of self settle right in. Now, okay, this awareness is me. Now different teachers in the Zen and... Tibetan traditions also point this out because the truth is the same. One Tibetan Rinpoche, Trangu Rinpoche, he just had one little teaching which, when I read it, it, it sort of jumped out at the page, off the page for me. He said, The failure to recognize the true nature of mind occurs because the lucid, Or aware aspect, the knowing aspect, obscures its empty aspect. That's really saying the same thing that Mahasi Sayadaw said. The awareness aspect can get so vivid that that obscures its empty aspect in which there's no possibility of identification at all. So in this sudden awakening of recognizing the nature of mind, the nature of mind is the union of the clarity, the clear aspect, the lucid aspect, and the empty aspect. Tilko Ergin, who was another one of the recent great Dzogchen masters, he would often instruct his students to look for the mind. That was his instruction. Look for the mind. Can you see it? Can you touch it? Can you taste it? Can you feel it? Look for it, and there's nothing to find. And then he would go on to say, and this is the key point, The not finding is the finding. We look for the mind. And this is an instruction. This is something to do. This is a practice. Look for the mind. Look for your mind. You look, you look, you look. Where is it? I can't see it. I can't hear it. I can't touch it. We look for it. And we really see there's nothing to find and then that moment of recognition that not finding is the finding. That's when we are experiencing or realizing its empty nature, that there is nothing to find. This same teaching, same realization was pointed to in a very famous Zen dialogue and it's it's the Zen dialogue between Bodhidharma, who was the first Zen patriarch, and the second, the, the, the person who would become the second. I'm not sure how his name is pronounced. It's spelled H-U-I-K-E. It's Chinese name, Huayka. So Bodhidharma is in China, having come from India to bring the Dharma to China, sitting in his cave, supposedly for seven years, facing the wall, and Hueka comes desperate for the teachings. And Bodhidharma ignores him for a long time, but Hueka is very insistent. So finally, Bodhidharma turns around, comes out of the cave, and Hweika says, please teach me the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas. Bodhidharma says, the Dharma seal of all the Buddhas cannot be obtained from someone else waker he's very he's relentless my mind is distressed please pacify it hey, this could be us you know my mind is distressed please pacify it bodhidharma present me your mind and i will pacify it waker i've searched for my mind but I can't find it, Bodhidharma. There, I've pacified it. The not-finding is the finding. When we look for the mind, can't find it. I've looked for it everywhere, but I can't find it. In that understanding of its empty aspect, it's already pacified and what's so interesting about this for me, in that moment, not finding, already pacified, that is the moment of the mind free of craving. And this is where all the traditions just seem to, to all come together in their understanding of the nature of the free mind. The vocabulary is different, the metaphysics may be different, but the nature of freedom is the same. So we've seen how different traditions speak in different ways you know, about the unconstructed, the unconditioned, the unborn. And even in the Pali Canon, you know, of the Theravada teachings, the Buddha used many different words to describe this realization of the Third Noble Truth. And I want to read just some of the words right from the texts, And I'll show you that it can be described from so many different sides, you know, illuminating different aspects of it. So these are the words the Buddha used to describe Nibbana, the third noble truth, the cessation of Dukkha. He described it as the unfashioned, the end, the true, the beyond, the subtle, the very hard to see, the ageless, the undecaying, the featureless, non-differentiation, peace, the deathless, the exquisite, bliss, solace, the exhaustion of craving, the wonderful, the marvelous, the secure, nibbana, the unafflicted, the passionless, the pure, release, non-attachment, the island, shelter, harbor, refuge, the ultimate. Take your pick. You know, which, which words inspire you? Which words connect? Because they're all describing the same place of freedom. Sometimes the liberating power of this realization comes quickly. Sometimes it happens after we've been practicing for a long time and come after many, many years of practice. And there are stories of many great masters who spent decades in their caves practicing before realization. Or we may have moments of recognition of the nature of mind followed by many years of cultivation. However, each of our individual practices are unfolding and they'll all unfold differently. As we develop the factors of enlightenment, as we practice them and develop them and cultivate them, and as we deepen our understanding of the Four Noble Truths, inevitably the mind is led to, the mind inclines towards Nibbana, towards the ultimate peace, the ultimate ease, I'd just like to end with this words from Dilgo Kense Rinpoche, describing it from the Tibetan perspective, using that vocabulary. He said, At present, the natural clarity of your mind is obscured by delusions. But as the obscuration clears, you will begin to uncover the radiance of awareness Until you reach a point where, just as a line traced on water disappears the moment it is made, your thoughts are liberated the moment they arise. To experience mind in this way is to encounter the very source of Buddhahood. When awareness reaches its full extent, the ramparts of delusion will have been breached and the citadel of the Absolute beyond meditation, can be seized once and for all. This is our practice.
0: It's entirely online and designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit betterhelp.com/insighthour today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H Insight Hour.